Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening in to the 21st episode of the Lovable Podcast. Today, we're going to focus on a big relationship problem all of us have, our walls. The walls we build around our heart to protect us from pain and disappointment. But we're going to come at this problem from a different angle than is typical. The problem is not our walls. Our walls are not a bad thing. They're an essential thing. The problem is that we don't know how to manage our walls in a way that cultivates belonging rather than loneliness. So we're going to talk about how to wisely use our walls in our relationships. Before we have that conversation, though, I have more details for you about the Lovable Weekend in Waco, Texas on April 20th. It's hosted by Bryn and Ashton Gustafson. And Ashton just yesterday released a detailed schedule of the event, so I'm going to give you a quick summary. We're going to start at 6.30 on Friday night with hors d'oeuvres and cocktails. And then from 8 to 10 o'clock on Friday night, uh, we're going to have a session on worthiness. Then we're going to get back together on Saturday morning at their home for breakfast around 9 a.m. Uh, we'll have a session on belonging from 10 to noon. And then from noon to 2, we're going to have a lunch break, and they're going to take us on, on an outing out into Waco and uh, show us around. Then we'll get back together on Saturday afternoon, April 21, for um, a, a session on purpose from 2.30 to 4.30. And then finally, we're going to conclude with a celebration dinner from 7 to 10 o'clock on Saturday night at their home. So super excited about this. I would love to have you there. In each of those sessions, there's going to be this rhythm in which I talk briefly about some ideas that will deepen your reading and experience of Lovable. And then Ashton and I are going to have sort of a fun conversation about those ideas and followed by group dialogue, and finally some time for guided individual contemplation during each of those sessions. So I'm really excited. I think it could be helpful, even healing for a lot of people. So um, my wife and I are going to be there that weekend. We can't wait to meet you in Waco. Uh, so there's just a couple of spots left, and you can get your tickets uh, at mkt.com backslash Ashton. mkt.com backslash Ashton. Um, also, in case you don't know, I've got some free stuff for you. If you haven't signed up for my weekly email, you can go to drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. Sign up in the right sidebar. You'll get uh, the one weekly email, a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto, and a free sample of my book, Lovable. Uh, and in those weekly emails, you'll get all sorts of more free content, like uh, my every other week blog posts, these podcast episodes, and other free resources. So lots of good stuff there. Make sure you don't, don't miss out on that. Uh, and of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it, or you can go anywhere books are sold and get it in paperback, digital, and audio format. So um, feel free to check that out if uh, if you haven't done so already. So I think that's it. Let's uh, Let's get into this week's episode. Let's talk about our walls and what to do with them. And as always, thank you for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 20 of the year of listening, loving, and living. This week's chapter is entitled, What to Do with Your Walls. 
This week, we're going to be talking about the walls we build around our hearts and how to use those walls wisely and in a way that cultivates true belonging rather than continued loneliness. Before we move forward with that, though, we're now a few weeks into the months of loving, into this, uh, this time of this year of listening, loving, and living, where we are focusing on cultivating belonging, on taking the worthiness we've begun to embrace in the early months of listening and beginning to reveal that in the world. Um, and this can be a sometimes scary, but ultimately a rewarding process of revealing our truest, worthiest self to others. So I just want to check in, see how you're doing. How do you feel like you're growing? Are you excited? How do you feel like you're challenged? Are you frustrated? At this point in the journey, how are you doing? So while you're thinking about what you want to share, um, I thought I'd share with you just a practice that is sort of a variation on last week's practice that we talked about here on the podcast, but one that's been invaluable to me over time. And I wish I did it every day and I don't, um, but I've been giving some talks about belonging and ego and I've been recommending to people in the audience to do this practice, and so it sort of convicted me, well, why, don't, why aren't you doing it uh, consistently? And this is the way I sort of summarize the practice. In the evening before you fall asleep and in the morning right when you wake up, instead of flicking through your phone, flick through your ego, right? So we were talking last week about this ego castle that is made of walls that hide us, cannons that defend us, and thrones that elevate us in sort of a, an arrogant way above everybody else. Flick through your ego, right? At night, ask yourself, how did I, how did I hide behind my walls today? Uh, how did I um, uh, fire my cannons? How did I act in aggressive ways to keep people at a distance? To, uh, and, and in what ways did I sort of find ways to arrogantly elevate myself above others? Um, and so I, I, I practice doing that at night. So rather than just going to my phone and you know flicking through Facebook until I'm I'm uh, brain dead taking that survey of the day. And then first thing in the morning, just taking a survey of yourself and saying, how did I, how am I waking up today? And it's totally random usually. Am I waking up behind my walls, just anxiously sort of wanting to hide and not be seen today? Uh, am I waking up manning my cannons and feeling sort of grumpy and grouchy and just want to take somebody down? Um, or am I waking up in this sort of elevated, arrogant place? Um, and, and this really hit home to me. I, I was because when I wake up on mornings where I'm speaking publicly, I always feel more vulnerable. It's a vulnerable experience to get up in front of people. So I always discover that I'm in some way sort of hunkered down in my ego castle protecting because I'm feeling more vulnerable. And so a couple consecutive weeks I did this practice and one week I discovered I was waking up kind of wanting to fire my cannons at everybody in the house. Um, another week I was waking up sort of elevated and wanting to preach to everybody in the house. And so that awareness first thing in the morning of where am I at with my ego this morning and how can I do something different? And, and today we're going to talk about that. How can I do something different? What else can I do besides being behind my walls, uh, for instance? So that's where we're going to go today, but just a variation of, of the practice from last week. And I, I'd love to hear variations of things that you're, you're also doing in this year of listening, loving, and living, and anything else. Chris writes, I know I have some walls. However, I'm not clear what they are. Um, and Chris, this is a great question. And last week we started to, to, to try to become aware of some of these things. So we specifically started to make a list of the ways that we hide. Um, hide ourselves away from the world. Try to be less seen, less known, um, so that we don't put ourselves in the way of rejection and disappointment and criticism and so on. So some of the things that I often describe are um, staying silent, um, not having a voice, um, not having boundaries, um, people-pleasing, 
trying to fit in instead of doing what we naturally do if we're if we're who we are, which is stand out because we're unique. Um, you know, trying to to live in a certain place, wear certain clothes, do all sorts of things to try to blend in to the scenery so that you're not seen as much. So walls typically are ways of of, of staying unknown, unseen, um, and uh, un invulnerable, essentially, right? Because if you can't get in here, you can't see me, then you can't hurt me. Um, that's sort of the gist of the idea with walls. So I hope that helps a little bit, and I hope our conversation as we go through today also begins to sort of flesh out for people what it looks like to be hiding behind ego walls. Alan writes, I think my number one wall is silence. Flicking through ego upon laying down and rising up would be helpful. I'll at least start by not checking phone as much. Yeah, I think I think those part of the reason that most of us, the last thing we do at night is look at our phone and the first thing we do in the morning is look at our phone, is that really that those moments, you know, between sleep and waking, those are like boundary lands where we're not really doing anything. We have an opportunity for self-reflection, and so they can be really valuable times. Um, but they're also they're not easy times, right? When you start to face some of the stuff that you've done over the day subtly, um, and some of the ways that you're waking and about to make a mess of the next day, um, and so it's sometimes easier just to sort of numb out and go to that phone. But Alan, if you're just sort of committed to not doing that. I trust that your awareness of some of these things will start to grow. And I also appreciate what you said, Alan, about silence being your number one number one wall, right? Just just muting your voice is a form of an ego wall, right? Because if I don't if I don't speak up, people can't disagree with me, they can't tell me what I said wasn't good enough, they can't be disappointed and reject what I said. So silence is probably the number one most common uh, ego wall. Brenda writes, I want to say it's staying quiet, but I really do say too much for that to be true. <laughs> That's funny, Brenda. I, uh, I wish I could say I had an ego wall around silence. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, both of those extremes, right, can, can be places where we feel shame. I need to stay quiet because uh, what I have to say is not good enough. But shame can also then start to attack the other extreme of that, which is, um, oh no, I'm saying too much. I'm too much for people. I'm too much of a burden. Uh, people don't like how much I talk. Um, and the challenge is to simply be yourself um, and not let your, um, your actions be guided by the shame and judgment of others, right? Um, we want to let our actions be guided by empathy um, and awareness of others and social sensitivity, but not by their shame and judgment. Um, and so trying to, to, to let yourself be you, whether that's talking a lot, talking a little, um, but letting yourself have your authentic voice rather than the one others expect of you. Deb W. writes, I think I hide behind my smile. You mentioned that weeks ago, and that resonated with me. I tend to think my smile is welcoming and warm to people, but sometimes it communicates that everything is okay with me when it's not. Um, I, I don't know where I heard this, but once I heard that being needless and wantless was a way to, um, to sort of project your false self, right? I'm all smiles, I'm all good, I don't need anything from anybody, want anything from anybody, when deep down, yeah, um, I've got some things I'm struggling with and I need to reach out and, and, and be honest about that. So I think you're exactly right, W. being easy. This is probably one of my greatest skills. <laughs> being an easy person can be an ego wall, right? It's a way of trying to not be a burden so people can't get frustrated with you and reject you and leave you. Um, so a smile, um, not having needs, not having wants, not asking for help, these are all ways of, of building ego walls.
and Brenda adds, maybe it's really people pleasing. Um, I've always said that's my my um, my ego wall is is made primarily out of people pleasing. I mean, it's an instinct, right? It's if if I please people, they'll be pleased with me. Um, so I will I will decrease the odds of getting shamed in this moment if I can keep people happy with me. Um, and, and so what we do is we sort of take our true self and we put it away and we become the person that will please others in the hope of not feeling. Um, ashamed, not getting rejected. But again, then that introduces us, Brenda, in that, to that tension where I'm going about trying not to be rejected because I don't want to be alone, and yet I am ultimately alone because my true self isn't getting to express itself. My true self isn't contacting the world. It's not really in relationship. My false self is. Um, and so we want to be aware that sort of we're, um, we're sort of self-sabotaging when we do that in our effort to not be rejected and be alone. Joy writes, I stay behind competency. Oh, that is so good, Joy. That is so good, right? I'm competent. I can handle it. I don't have any needs. I don't have any weakness. Um, I've got it all together. Just had a great conversation with someone yesterday about this, um, you know, this masculine ideal too, right? The Marlboro man who just got it all figured out and he's strong and he doesn't have any needs and he doesn't have any complicated emotions. Um, I think competency is a great example of an ego wall. Thank you. Deb F adds, yes, having it all together, being very independent is an, an ego wall. Yeah. Um, we started to talk at the end of the months of, um, of listening, of embracing our worthiness. We started to talk about this awareness that we're all deeply interconnected and interdependent and, uh, and, and hunkered down behind our ego. We want to deny that. We want to say, no, I can handle things on my own because as soon as I start to connect with people, I'm opening myself up in a very vulnerable way. Um, as soon as I'm dependent upon people. Um, and so I do think that that's, a, that's an excellent example of, of how we sort of hunker down behind our ego walls. I've got it all together. I'm independent. I don't need anybody to be connected with. <laughs> Brenda writes, I remember playing the needless and wantless card as a teenager. Yep. Yep. Man, teenagers play that card really well, Brenda. You're not alone. Goodness gracious. Deb W writes, Brenda, definitely me too as a teenager. So frustrating when it rears its ugly head in adulthood. <laughs> um, I'm reading a great, uh, I'm reading Madeline LaIngle's um, Walking on Water. Uh, it's a book about faith and art. And uh, she makes this great point that we are all every version of ourselves all at once, right? And it, so it rears its ugly head as an adult, Deb, because you still have that teenager in you somewhere, you know? And when it rears its ugly head, that teenager is saying, hey, I need some attention here. Um, I'm, I'm activated for some reason. Uh, so I'm a candidate for some more healing at this point is essentially what's happening there. So <laughs> Brenda... Brenda, going back to talking about the needless and wantless as a teen, says, I didn't stop in my teens. Uh, I didn't say I stopped in my teens, just that I remember doing it as a teen. <laughs> it ebbs and flows since then, right? And, um, and I think that's exactly right, that our favorite ways of, of hiding and of, of being behind a wall, um, they, they remain our favorites for the rest of our lives. And, and so the task is to really become familiar with them, to sort of see them coming um, even as they're, they're, you know, as they're, as they're revisiting us. Um, and we can become familiar with them over time and then begin to make different choices, right? Um, we can say, oh, I'm about to do that thing, right? I'm needless and I'm wantless and I'm going to pretend like I don't really need anybody and I'm totally independent. Um, but that means this is probably a moment more than others where I need to lower that drawbridge, be vulnerable, 
ask for help, let myself be seen as somebody who is human like everybody else and has needs and wants. Um, so the very things that we use to protect can become cues for, oh, this must be a moment where I need to practice vulnerability. How can I do that in a wise and healthy way right now? And that's how things start to change. Heather writes, I stand behind my strength. I've got it all figured out when actually that is complete BS. I'm usually a bit of a mess. <laughs> um, so Heather, I was talking with some guys just about a week and a half ago and we thought, uh, we came up with this podcast idea where you just basically invite ordinary people on who, you know, people who are doing fine in life. And basically they tell their story and we focus in on the points where everybody's just making it up as they go. Uh, nobody really has it figured out. Successful people didn't know that they were going to get to success in that way, for instance. And you just sort of admit um, through your story that we are all figuring it out as we go. Um, that we're all in the same boat as you. I think that'd be a powerful, um, a powerful medium for helping people understand that it may look like everybody's got it together, but none of us do. Jennifer writes, defeat. Is defeat an ego wall? Mm. I would, first of all, I'd say defeat is a very real and authentic experience. Um, I don't think when we feel sort of defeated by our attempts to be in relationship and our sense of failure in doing so that we are somehow manipulating the moment to stay safe. I don't, I don't think that that's always true. But I do think resigning ourselves to defeat, right? Saying, well, it's just never going to happen for me. I haven't found belonging to this point, and so I, I guess I'm just not going to. Um, I do think it's safer to quit. Um, it's much safer to quit, much lonelier to quit, to sort of resign oneself to a life of loneliness. Um, but I do think it's a way of sort of... Um, of sort of staying behind the ego wall and not taking the risk of venturing out. So yes, I, I would say it's a little bit of both. Chris writes, sometimes when I'm open to my truth, I'm then judged negatively, which then pulls me back behind the walls again. I recognize this, but it feels far safer. Like Chris, you're appreciate that and I appreciate your vulnerability with that because you're getting exactly at the heart of the, the risk and the vulnerability required in order to find belonging right? Because when you say, I'm open to my truth, I'm then judged negatively. Being open to your truth, sharing it with people, sharing with people who you truly are, it's also the only way to find belonging. It's, you know, you have to be seen in order for someone to go, you, you, I, I, I dig you. I want to be with you. I want you on my team, right? Um, but that very action also leaves us open to criticism, negativity, and judgment. Um, and so this process of finding belonging isn't necessarily a simple and joyous one. It's one in which we, um, we present ourselves to the world and a few handful of people over here go, love it. I, I want, I want to be with you. And a bunch of other people go, I don't get you at all. You don't make any sense to me. Uh, I think what you're saying is wrong. And I think you're wrong. Um, and we gradually begin to trust that the people who we belong to are telling the truth about us. Um, rather than the people who would shame us for what we have to, to say and who we are. So um, it truly is. There's a tension always in this process of cultivating and finding belonging. Chris writes, why is it that even if 100 people support us, we choose to buy into the one negative? <laughs> That's such a great question. Um, and uh, so the uh, I've heard it often referred to as the missing tile syndrome. Um, so for instance, if you walked into a new house, and the house was uh, beautifully tiled, say the floor, but there was one missing tile, what are you gonna notice? Um, 
and that this is actually the the purpose of this uh, perceptive sort of instinct in, in human beings is a good one right we want to see we want to know what's out of order what's not working right um, you know it's what it's what helps us to to for instance to pick up on a tumor right um, well everything else in my body is working fine but I notice the tumor that's a good thing right um, and so our natural instinct is to notice this the thing that stands out um, and the thing that is going appears to be going wrong it's built into us for a good reason but then our shame starts to use that and says look that one person they're telling the truth about you not that not the hundred people um, that are saying something different about you so we instead and we talked about this in the months of listening we want we want to challenge that voice of shame we want to say you're talking but I don't have to believe you and I can listen to a different voice within me right that says actually these people are telling the truth about me um, the people who are reflecting my worthiness to me seeing me for who I truly am um, celebrating and enjoying and embracing me those are the people telling the truth about me um, and we don't want to let that instinct to notice the negative be hijacked by our shame um, and used against us. So it's a great question, Chris, and I hope that helps a little bit. Julie writes, Lately I've been waking up hoping and wondering for opportunities for real connection with people, especially with the job interview process. It beats the heck out of imagining that people will demand I explain myself, feeling inadequate, and sometimes feeling, unfortunately, preemptively defensive. I've been feeling more comfortable in my own skin, owning my story for what it is not a straight arrow path. Being super sick has a nice way of sort of rearranging your perceptions, I think is where you're finishing there, Julie. Um, what, a, what a powerful example for all of us about how our intentions at the beginning of a day, throughout a week, throughout a month and a year can begin to rearrange our experience of life, right? We wake up and maybe we naturally find ourselves sort of expecting people to judge us justify ourselves, demand that we defend ourselves, and instead you intentionally wake up anticipating the good things that might come your way, the the connection, the affirmation, and so on. And so what you do then is instead of having to immediately preemptively defend yourself by hunkering down behind your ego walls, you're more likely to show yourself to the world and invite the very kind of affirmation that you want. So our intention around that and our intentionality can be a creative process in and of itself. Uh, and thanks for thanks for pointing that out, Julie. As always, everybody, this is a, a great conversation, and I think we could could keep going. And so let's let's do keep it going by transitioning into this week's reading. Um, again, I want to give this reading just a very little bit of context. Last week, we again we talked about this ego castle thing with its walls and cannons and thrones, um, but we didn't talk about a fourth part of the ego castle. So I'm going to read a short excerpt from Lovable about that part of the ego because it's important to be aware of it as we start to talk about our walls in more depth. So here it is. I'm reading from page 124 of the paperback of Lovable. I befriended my ego around the time my son brought home a book called Wonder. Wonder is the story of a 10-year-old boy named Augie, born with extreme facial deformities. It's the tale of a boy beginning public school for the first time. Middle school is, a treach is treacherous enough when you look completely normal, but for a kid with a misshapen head and facial features like running wax, middle school is like venturing into the wild, where your tender heart is the prey and your peers are the predators. My son read the book first. The rumor going around his school was you couldn't read it without crying. He vowed not to crack, but he emerged from his bedroom with cheeks glistening. The same thing happened to my wife. 
It left me with glistening cheeks too. As I read Wonder, I wanted desperately for Augie to protect himself, to shield his lovely heart from the abuse of others, and to my surprise, I was glad when his budding ego emerged. He would have been emotionally eviscerated without it. It was essential to the survival of his heart. It was a necessary armor, there to protect and preserve him for a time as he ventured through the wild. As I read Wonder, I stopped hating my ego and became grateful for it. Instead of declaring war on it, I started embracing it. And then instead of trying to destroy it, I started saying goodbye to it, like a slow parting with an old friend you can always return to in your time of need. I learned you don't resist your ego, you release it. You don't tear down your castle, you walk out of it. In other words, while reading Wonder, I became aware of a part of the ego castle I'd been overlooking, the drawbridge. In a castle, the drawbridge is a point of vulnerability, a passageway through which the castle inhabitants have contact with the outside world, and, then, and one that permits the outside world to enter the castle. However, a drawbridge is always controlled from the inside. No one can force us to lower our defenses and step out of our ego. It's up to us to let down our drawbridge so our soul can roam freely. So with that context from Lovable, I'm going to go ahead and read um, this week 20 reading titled What to Do with Your Walls. Here it is. Walls are everywhere in the world we walk through. They keep the heat in the house and the snow and the wind out. They give us borders, clarifying where our land stops and another's begins. They keep, they keep those that break rules and commit crimes in a place apart. They keep the waters in the reservoirs. When planes hit them, they fall down and it changes everything. We memorialize our heroes on them. We build them so big they are the only things we create that can be seen from space. It's like we're advertising to the universe, walls matter on this big spinning rock. But perhaps the biggest walls, the most important walls, are the ones that cannot be seen at all. Perhaps the walls that matter most are the walls we erect in our minds, build around our hearts, and place firmly between ourselves and other people. Quinn has walls like that, and I learned an important lesson about them one day when he was four during a friendly game of Junior Monopoly. As usual, I was losing, badly. I'd like to promote myself as the sensitive father going easy on his son's budding ego, but the truth is the kid has my number in Junior Monopoly. I was losing and having fun, really having fun, so I decided to tell him. I looked him directly in the eye and I said, Quinn, it's really good to be here with you. Things can change so quickly. I could almost see the veil that dropped over his eyes. And before I could fully digest what was happening, the dice were sailing across the room. Needless to say, our time together did not end as well as it had begun. What happened? I think my words got inside his walls and he wanted me out. He has claimed his interior world as his space and he gets to decide who comes in and how far in and when they enter and I had somehow surprised him by going too far, without warning, when all he wanted was to buy ticket booths and sip hot cocoa. You see, our walls are an essential part of who we are. Without walls, without a boundary on ourself, without something in us that says this is me and that is you, we risk a kind of psychic nakedness that results in chaos at best, and at worst, a psychotic confusion about what is real and what is not. We cannot exist as individuals without our walls. And if our walls all work perfectly, the world would suddenly become a lot less complicated place, and our relationships would become easier and more peaceful. But they don't work perfectly. For most of us, our walls are broken, and sometimes badly in need of repair. Some of us have walls that are always down, and the smallest comment can eviscerate us. Or we become a receptacle for all of the vile things that one human being can do to another. Or we confuse the goals, values, and desires of everyone we love for our own. Some of us have walls that are big, thick, and impenetrable, and no one gets in, ever. And what begins by feeling safe ends with feeling lonely. 
And some of us have walls that don't know what they want to do. They are down one moment and completely erect the next, and no one can predict how we will act from one day to another. We need safe spaces in which to practice doing something new with our walls. Therapy is meant to be one such space, and understanding how our walls are treated in the therapeutic space can help us to understand what to look for in any place of belonging. More specifically, though there is a popular misconception that therapy is a place where our walls are completely dismantled, where total openness and vulnerability are made manifest and nothing is withheld, this is actually not the ultimate goal of good therapy. Therapy is not meant to be a wrecking ball for the walls we have built. Therapy is simply a space where we learn how to be wise and healthy with our walls. For instance, if we walk through life with no walls, in a state of psychological nudity, therapy is a place where we build walls, and we learn that not everyone has to get in, and when they do, it will be the right people, and it will be up to us, and we will decide when and how. In contrast, if we walk through life behind an impenetrable wall of smiles, intellect, work, sarcasm, image, isolation, or any other form of hiding, and we've already talked about a lot of them today, then therapy is a place to build a door in our wall. Not a revolving door where anyone can come and go as they please, but a door of our choosing that opens from the inside. A door that makes it possible for you to confidently invite people into your lonely space, because it is good to have company we can trust. Furthermore, if you don't know what to do with your walls, if they drop when you don't want them to and shoot skyward at the slightest provocation, there is a therapy is a partnership with someone who won't leave you alone when your two tall walls are telling everyone else to leave, and who won't invade you when the absence of boundaries invites everyone else in. In other words, therapy is an exemplar of a safe space, a place of belonging, in which our walls can undergo a renovation. But it is not the only such space. A place of belonging can be found with anyone who insists that your decisions about intimacy and vulnerability be slow and wise, but most of all definitively yours. Let's cultivate those kinds of relationships wherever we find them. So um, there's a lot in that reading, um, but I think the, the main goal of that reading is, um, number. there's several I guess, number one is to cultivate a sense of compassion for our walls in the same way that I was talking about in Lovable. I have walls because I needed them at some point, <laughs> or my walls don't work very well because no one ever really taught me how to how to manage my walls. Um, and so this is not about eliminating our walls, but this is about the learning the healthy and wise process of when do I let down my drawbridge? When do I be vulnerable? With who? Who do I allow in? Who do I trust? Um, how do I grow in a sense of freedom to walk out of this ego castle? Um, and, and feel sort of in charge of that process. So, um, so this, this reading is intended to sort of loosen up our sense that, well, walls are just bad, and instead to say, say, yeah, walls are sort of a neutral thing. They served a purpose, and now we want to make sure that that purpose um, is, is serving us, is serving our relationships, that our walls are serving to help us love ourselves and others better rather than keep us uh, more separated from others. So um, I'm, I'm going to scroll back, and I would love to hear your thoughts about, um, about the reading and about walls in general. Sonali writes, Walls are good sometimes. I realized this when a moment of ego pride asserting itself saved me from getting into a relationship that would not have gone well. That's so good, Sonali. The instinct to protect oneself is not always a bad thing, um, and the ego is built for protection. Um, the question is, over time, do our habits of protection, do our patterns of protection end up leading to us loving ourselves and others better, 
or do they lead to us being more disconnected and more lonely? Um, and so in this case, and you can learn from that, I think, like, oh, my ego served me well here. This is how I can trust it. Um, but there may be some other ways in which that pride jumps up. And over time, as I look at that, I start to see that I'm more lonely, more disconnected. Um, but yeah, great, great example of how we, we don't need to sort of vilify everything about our ego castle. Deb W writes, I really like the drawbridge metaphor and how it has to be open from the inside. We walk away from the ego castle, not taking a wrecking ball to it, but say goodbye for a while. Yeah, that's the, thanks Deb for sort of elaborating on that image, because to me that's the image that is most powerful for me, is that over time what happens is our drawbridge stays down longer for longer periods of time. We find ourselves more free to leave the castle and roam around. Um, but if we're in a dangerous situation, an emotionally dangerous situation, it's it's okay. You go back to the castle, you roll up the drawbridge, and you say, you know, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. We talked about the bucket metaphor, right? It's essentially the bucket metaphor. Nope, I'm not letting you put that in my emotional bucket. It's not gonna happen. Um, so we don't need to destroy the castle. We just build a life around living as much as possible outside of it, and uh, and then returning to it as needed. And and that's that's sort of the goal, I think. Deb F. writes, such a delicate balance and how to decipher what situation warrants what. That takes a lot of practice. I have found that with extended family members where I thought I didn't need walls, I do. And I can't read the rest of what you're saying, um, Deb F., but yes, um, practice, intentionality, um, learning the hard way. Uh, I might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but you know, over the holidays, I had a day where... I got way high up on my ego throne and the next day I woke up and just went, what was I doing? Right. And I needed to go apologize for it. It wasn't a situation that warranted that in any way. Um, and then other days we don't, we, you know, we stay outside the castle and we get nailed and we go, Oh, that I need to remember in that relationship, that person is not, they're not a safe person to be that way with. Um, for whatever reason, it's not my responsibility to figure it out or fix it. It's just my responsibility to decide what I do with my walls in those moments. So yeah, a lot of it is learning, learning in the field, which can be so hard and so painful. John writes, what if we are more open, vulnerable than our spouse? Not that they hide, but just less generous with their mess. And uh, John, I say that's actually the, the situation in most marriages. Um, I think it's you know, there's that whole opposites attract thing. I think it's really rare that two people who are sort of equally vulnerable about their mess um, get get married. Um, and, I, you know, I can only speak from experience, um, but I would say that um, the, the task is to, to be vulnerable enough to learn from each other, right? Um, so the, the, the sort of the less vulnerable spouse learns how to be more vulnerable, and the spouse who maybe tends to be vulnerable more of the time uh, figures out how to um, how to regulate that in a way that is a good fit for the people that they love. Um, and so I, I don't think that's an uncommon thing. I help couples with that all the time. Um, but there has to be some uh, overarching conversation that that's our task here, is to figure out how to, to match our different styles and our different ways of being. So um, thank you for that question. Brenda writes, my walls go up and down unpredictably, even by me. <laughs> I'm left surprised and wondering who's controlling the drawbridge too. Um, boy, that's a powerful, it's a powerful um, image actually, Brenda, to be like, who's in charge of the drawbridge? <laughs> and uh, 
I, to me, it's always helpful to go back to this idea that we have a little one inside of us, right? Because I think what you're saying is in that moment, you're going, adult me wasn't in charge of the drawbridge at that moment, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and so which, which version of me, which younger me, which little one sort of panicked in that moment? Why? What, what did that little one remember from the past that, that scared him or her, um, that made him or her feel the need to protect? Um, and to sort of check in with that little kid inside of us about why did you just close the bridge? What, what, what was that about? And have that conversation with the little one inside of us. I know it sounds abstract and a little weird, but I think it can actually be a really powerful practice. Leslie writes, I can totally see myself as a younger version of myself, standing at the drawbridge with the rope in my hands, looking out, scared, not knowing if I should drop the bridge or keep it closed to protect myself. Um, you know, Leslie, um, I'm glad that that image worked for you. Um, my experience as a therapist is that the image works for a lot of people. Um, and there's a little bit of a freedom in it because there's uh, suddenly there's this awareness that oh wait, there's this little version of me in there that's got the rope and doesn't really know what to do. But I have this adult version of me that can sort of coach her through that, right? Um, that, that I'm not only the scared version of me, but I'm also the version of me that's developed wisdom and insight about how to handle situations like this. So we can dialogue and figure out what to do about this drawbridge at that moment. And that, that dialogue can be really healing. Um, and you can start to see new things beginning to happen in terms of our choices and behaviors. So at that moment, uh, my encouragement to anyone is uh, to have that dialogue with the little one, um, your adult self and your younger self, sort of negotiating the process together. Um, things can start to change when that happens. Joy writes, I love the wisdom in choosing who and when and how much to share. These are good boundaries. Having a few close friends that get to come in, love that we can honor each other this way. Joy, thanks for that affirmation of the nuance that we're talking about in this particular um, week. And I think it's a really good segue into this week's practice, all right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this week's practice um, and we can continue the discussion from there. Over the years, I've come to recognize a specific kind of client that comes to me for therapy. This person has good self-esteem, is aware of their worthiness, and has a relatively clear and well-recognized sense of identity. However, they are struggling with taking the next step, revealing their identity. They are having difficulty taking down their walls. Last week, we identified people you are most likely to limp around and those you would feel most comfortable walking normally around. In other words, those you're most likely to protect around and those you'd feel most comfortable um, revealing yourself to. For instance, people with whom you could take down your walls slowly, carefully, and wisely. These are people that may provide a kind of therapeutic space for you, a space where you can practice being a little more vulnerable, perhaps even clumsy, as you try to do new things with your walls. It will probably still feel difficult or scary to practice something new with this person, but at least it will feel possible. This week, choose one person from the heel column in last week's exercise. Reach out to that person and ask if you can get together. Let them know you have something important to talk to them about. When you get together, let them know you trust them and you are working on being more authentic in your relationships and you want to be especially intentional about that in your relationship with them. Tell them this means you're going to try to reveal yourself more often, as well as be open about the times when you don't feel comfortable being vulnerable. Ask them if they'd like to do the same with you. It is very likely they will be relieved to be talking so candidly about walls. If they agree, then begin by sharing something with them that you have never told anyone else. Again, go slow, start small. For example, 
when I was a kid, and this is vulnerable, folks, when I was a kid, I'd pick my boogers and I'd wipe them under the seat of the car. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there's an old Honda hatchback with boogers under the back seat. You see, small stuff like that, right? We'll get to the bigger stuff later in these months of loving, for, but for now, just let your walls down a little bit or let that drawbridge down just a little bit. Of course, it's also possible there are no names in your heel column. Your relationships may feel a little too complicated for the cumbersome process of renovating your walls and learning when to drop them and when to raise them. And in this case, a therapist is someone who gives you the safe space to practice this and then helps you decide which healing people in your life you will begin to take down your walls with. This week, identify the person who is your therapeutic space, even if you have to call in a professional. After all, that's what they're there for. So that's this week's exercise. Um, I think in exercises like this, where uh, the exercise has been particularly challenging because it's actually going, taking this, this journey, this internal journey you've been on and going out into the world to actually involve other people in the journey. Um, I think that these have been particularly challenging exercises when that happens. And your feedback about the exercises, I think, has made them feel doable for people. So I'm interested to hear your feedback. While you're thinking about it, uh, I would say, I would, I would share something from my own experience. Um, that I did have to go to a therapist first to figure out what to do with my walls. Um, and then somewhere in the therapy, um, I remember one week he said to me, I want you just to identify three, three, three guys in your life, three guys that you, you just sort of get a sense that these are guys who are ready to be a little bit more authentic than usual, um, a little bit more connected, reveal a little bit more of themselves as well. And I just want you to just this week identify those guys. Um, and... Uh, to this day, those three guys remain close friends of mine um, because of the process that began to to, un to to play out with them after that suggestion from my therapist. So um, this is not about jumping into the deep end, not about taking down all your walls. This is just about saying, hey, I've, I've named a couple of people that I think I could really be um, myself with, and I'm just going to sort of push my comfort zone with those people a little bit. If you don't want to be as formal as I suggest in the exercise, that's okay too. Maybe it's a little bit less formal, but you just slowly start to push your comfort zone with these people that you sense you can trust. Um, that's, the, that's the spirit of this week's exercise, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Deb W. writes, For some reason, this practice feels scary for me. My initial reaction is a ton of excuses to why I don't need to do this. I'm going to think through why that's my first thought. Well, you know, I appreciate that, Deb. I appreciate your vulnerability because I think my awareness is that I think that would be the reaction for most of us. And the irony, of course, is that, oh, I don't need to do this practice. I'm needless and wantless. I'm all good. I'm independent. I'm strong, right? So the practice itself wants to trigger those walls. Um, and so the key is to say, how can I wisely push beyond that reaction just a little bit? Okay, so maybe Kelly recommended I do it this way, but I don't see myself doing it that way. I, I do see myself doing it this way, just moving myself a little bit further beyond those walls. Um, what would that look like for me? So that's my encouragement to everybody listening in, that you tailor this practice to yourself, um, but, but try not to let those walls reassert themselves in the form of, I don't really need to do this. Um, because the truth is we, we, we're here, all of us, wanting to seek deeper, more authentic connection. Um, and, and that's only going to happen if we start to push ourselves a little bit beyond our comfort zone. Um, I'm going to be holding myself accountable to this this week as well. So um, thanks for sharing that, Deb. Deb F. writes, I find it's when I get the butterflies in my gut. It is when I am a bit scared and probably something I do need to do. This is one of those situations. I think the, the, and this is, 
it's sort of like the bad news about the process of cultivating belonging is that it's marked by butterflies. I think that's it, you know, is that there's always that tension of I'm pushing myself a little bit beyond what is comfortable. Again, in a wise way, in a way where I've, I've sort of calculated the risks and I say it feels risky, but I think it's worth it. I think I can trust this person. I think I can try this. Um, I think I can tell them about my childhood boogers, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, that's this, this, these months of loving, ironically, are marked by butterflies. Um, and, and that's one of the things I tell folks oftentimes is, um, you know, we think that we are going to arrive at a sense of worthiness and then well, we won't be afraid of anything anymore. And the reality is when we arrive at a sense of worthiness, we begin to trust that we're worthy of doing new things, right? And having new relationships and new experiences. So it sort of plunges us into the, uh, the butterflies all over again, but now not in the service of hiding, but in the service of putting ourselves out there. Um, but I'm not sure the butterflies ever totally go away. Thanks as always, everyone, for a great discussion that I know could go on much longer. Uh, next week, we're going to shift our focus from our, our ego walls to our ego cannons with week 21 of the year of listening, loving, and living entitled Finding the Fear Underneath All the Fury. Until then, remember you are lovable and worthy of healthy walls. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Thank you.